I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, and this is Beyond the Page. Well, it's my lucky day. In this episode of our literary podcast, I get to swap roles with my good friend Larissa McFarquhar, the New Yorker staff writer and the author of the truly excellent book, Strangers Drowning, Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and The Urge to Help. John, hello. It's Larissa. Hey, Larissa. <laughs> I was just thinking it's a sign of the times that though you and Philip and the girls are 15 minutes away from us here, that we are recording this in separate places in our own houses <laughs> because of social distancing. Yeah, we've done the same thing. <laughs> and I've asked my daughters to take care of our dog. So I hope uh, our dog is much less well behaved than your dog. So I hope uh, we will not be interrupted by barking. So why don't we, uh, why don't we get to your book? Let's dive in. Yes, let's do it. So I want to introduce you first. Um, I think probably a lot of people who are listening will already know who you are. I mean, certainly anyone who's been to the Sun Valley Writers Conference already knows you. It's longtime literary director, and you are one of the people who has brought so many of the extraordinary writers who've spoken there over the years. And you are a presence, a constant presence in those few days every summer when the conference takes place in, in normal times, that is, sadly not this year. But today, we're going to talk, you're not here in your usual role as the host of either a podcast or a talk, but in the role you started out in, as in the role I knew you first as a novelist. Mm -hmm. And today we are going to talk about your most recent novel, which just came out in paperback, The Red Daughter. And there are so many things that I love about this book, but one of them jumped out at me, particularly now. I read the book for the first time when it came out in hardback last year, and I read it again just now to remind myself for our, our conversation. And you know, the world is changing dramatically like once a week uh, in ways that nobody has predicted. And your book 
is very much attuned to that rhythm. It shows the way that a sudden event or a choice, especially, of course, a terrible choice, can split a life in two and how that can happen again and again and again. Right. Um, and that again and again is something that I particularly love about this book because The Red Daughter, it's, of course, a work of fiction, but it's anchored in the story of a well-known real person. And I love the way that it not only accepts but embraces the way that a real life is you know, it's not an O. Henry story. It's messy. It's long. Mm -hmm. It throws out all the rules of traditional literary structure and just goes places you never could have expected right. at the beginning. All right. I, I could go on and on, but I want to first cut to an excerpt from your talk at the Sun Valley Writers Conference stage uh, last year, where you tell the origin story of this book, uh, an origin story which really gave me chills when I first heard it. I want to begin by telling you two stories about a woman's life 45 years apart, one from the middle of her life and one from the end of her life. Of course, as you probably know by now, it's not just any woman, but it's the daughter of Joseph Stalin. So we go back to 1967, to April, and when she defects from the Soviet Union, uh, it's 14 years after her father's death in 1953, and she arrives in America. It is unquestionably seen in retrospect as well, one of the most momentous events of the Cold War. She was and remains the most significant Soviet citizen ever to defect to the West. And just to give you a little window into how extraordinary an event that was and what a sensation it was around the world, when she set foot at JFK Airport, in late April 1967, there were more people waiting for her there than there had been for the Beatles in 1964. <laughs> Four days later, there was a press conference at the Plaza Hotel, and there were press there from 115 different countries. It was a live satellite feed around the world. Her memoir, which she had had with her in her suitcase when she defected, would go on to be published and would become an international bestseller. Uh, it was sold for a million and a half dollars, which at the time was second only to the memoirs of Winston Churchill. So just take that for a moment. It's history now, but put that aside and jump ahead 45 years later. A somewhat less celebrated moment. I wake up in my house in Brooklyn, and I go down to get the newspaper. It's 2011, November. I'm wearing my usual outfit, sweats. It's the home sweats, not the dress sweats. And there on the front page of the paper, in enormous headline, it says, Lana Peters, Stalin's daughter, dead at 85. Now, I should add that Lana Peters was the third name that she had during the course of her life. She was born Svetlana Stalina, and then after her father died, she took on her mother's maiden name, Svetlana Aluluyeva, and then when she came to America, she became, for reasons that I won't even get to today, but you'll have to read the book, Lana Peters. And that is how she died in 2011. So that is the two frames. I'm looking at the obituary, and I pick up the obituary, and there on the front page, there's a first photograph of Joseph Stalin in his late 50s, wearing his heavy military tunic, peasant tunic, and he's in his arms as an eight or nine-year-old daughter with red hair, and he's looking down at her face and she's looking up and smiling, 
And I would say that when I saw that picture on the obituary on the front page of the New York Times in 2011, the only word that came to my mind was tender. And I would argue to you today that that word is true, but of course it's not the whole story. I start reading in the first paragraph, the obituary writer says that her life was so extraordinary that it reads almost like a Russian novel. So I am intrigued from the start. I begin to read, and of course her life was extraordinary. Now I'm already having various memories. I had been aware of her in a way you'll see, but I had not thought of her in decades. I had not even been aware that she was still alive. I get to the second page, the big inside page of the obituary, and then I'm stopped in my tracks. Because there in the middle is another photograph. And this time she's not a little girl, this time she's 41 years old. She's standing on the tarmac at JFK. And I recognize her because that's what she'd looked like when I was very young. And I recognize the person with her because it's my father. So that's the part that uh, gave me chills when you first told me. Um, so now we know that this is not an ordinary work of historical fiction, even though it does deal with this very large, uh, larger-than-life uh, historical character, in that it combines a historical character with your own family. So what was it like making historical fiction of your father's experience? And I have to ask, what did, what did he think of it? Was he nervous? I hadn't fully processed at that time the complications, I think, of the fact that I was going to make a character out of my, the man who had the role that my father had. At the same time, I understood that there was something about that connection, her arriving here knowing no one, and their relationship, both she as a foreigner and the daughter of one of the worst despots in the history of the world, a man who was responsible for the death of well over 20 million people, and uh, a woman who I would come to understand would spend the rest of her life looking for a home in some sense and trying to be seen as somebody who was not that daughter and who would never succeed exactly, but would never stop trying. And then on the other hand, this young American man, uh, a Jewish man with complicated feelings of his own, perhaps about his own life, who was there in one of, certainly the most momentous moment of his life. I mean, he became a very public figure at a young age for a little while, though he was in the background. I mean, literally in the photograph, you know, he's next to her. So I just recognized that it was that meeting in a sense that I needed to get to and that it was going to be the sort of heart in some way of why I would write a novel about this. I never set out to write a history of it, and I never set out to write my father's life. I mean, um, I wouldn't have wanted to, and certainly that would have been problematic. But then you get to the second part of your question, which is about my father's response, which I know is always of interest. And I will simply say that he had at an earlier part, he had represented a lot of famous and fascinating people, starting when he was quite young. And by the time I was working on this book, he was in the last years of his practice as a lawyer. He's 87 now, lives in Los Angeles, and only retired about a year and a half ago. So 
I started, I had read some, he had dictated some thoughts and, and memories about some of those clients. Svetlana was one, Solzhenitsyn, Truman Capote, Arthur Miller, David Halberstam, Dustin Hoffman, Mel Brooks. And so wow. there were facts that he had begun to kind of collect, but it was in no professional sense. And I didn't get the sense that he was going to to do anything with that. But it certainly got my attention, the Svetlana part as well. And then I began going through his papers, which he very generously opened up to me. However, six years later or so, because I did stop a couple of times during the book to do other things, as you noted. And now by the time I'm finished with an early draft of this book, he literally is, it's the week that I send him the manuscript is the week that he is moving out of his office for good. He's retiring. I mean, oh finally. Oh my goodness. So that is a very mm -hmm. emotionally fraught time. And I had not shown him anything. And so he seemed alarmed and worried, um, maybe defensive ahead of the point. And we talked about that, but he hadn't read the book yet. It was, this was like two weeks later. So then a couple of weeks pass, I'm worried. And I had spent quite a lot of time on the author's note at the end of the book, in which I make it very clear that my father never had a romantic relationship with Svetlana, that he was not in the CIA, and how grateful I am to his generosity in opening his papers to me and all that. And so two weeks pass. I wrote that, obviously, with him in mind. And I get a call from him, and he had read the book, and he was extraordinarily complimentary. I mean, it, it meant a lot to me, and I immediately felt that we were in a better place. And he also, the thing he said to me that I appreciated most was he said, you, you got her. And for a novelist, of course, what that means, at least in my own interpretation of it, was that the Svetlana that I created had the, the rhythms and the sensibility and, the, and fought the battles of the real Svetlana, that the voice was a different voice, but kind of deeply related at an internal level. And I felt very good about that. I also think he saw that probably the biggest act of fiction in the entire book was the character of Peter Horvath, who is the lawyer in the novel, who is so different from my father. And that I used that initial coming together around her defection and those first months as which were the most historically accurate to his life as a building block to then leap off in a very different way and extrapolate that on through her life and his. So you have this, all these different strands of fact or blurred fact. I mean, you have your own memories, you have your father's memories, you have your father's papers, you have uh, biographies. And then, but they're, they're not enough. You have to, you have to add, you have to fill in to make it a whole work of fiction. How did you do that? How did you decide what to use, what not to use? You know, because as you know, like some historical novelists have very strong feelings about not fictionalizing things that are known. Others feel if it's fiction, anything goes. How did you, what were the ground rules you set for yourself if you, if you thought in that, those terms? How did you do it? So 
you were referring, I'm sure, to Hilary Mantel and her quite stringent, and I know you've written about her and her quite stringent notions of historical fiction. I, about my own approach, I would simply say that the research I do, and I, I love doing it as a novelist, but I do it as a novelist. I want to know everything I can. But what catches my eye, all the facts and details that catch my eye generally are things that to me, they're not ends in themselves, that they are uh, doorways, if you will, into rooms that offer some sort of psychological or emotional revelation. I'm interested in character and the inner life of the person I'm, I'm writing about. I'm generally not drawn to historical characters who, in and of themselves, whose lives might represent the entire time, if you will. I don't think necessarily that I would be the best person to do that anyway. This book, as you've noted, is absolutely kind of gathered round Svetlana's perceptions of her life. There are signs of other things happening, of course. When your father is Joseph Stalin, that would be unavoidable, and when you become as famous as she did. But nonetheless, it is her emotional antenna that, that is the antennae of the book. And then it's, that's counterbalanced to some degree by Peter Horvath, who has his own sections in the book, kind of as her observer, if you will, her, her biased observer, able to give slightly bigger picture of her life in America and what her actions might have meant and been to others. So I tried to always pick those things out of a very long life, those aspects, those details, that to me were aspects that represented more divides in her life, more choices, more things that shifted her or buffeted her one way or another, but that taken in their accumulation made this person that we are engaged with at a deeply sympathetic level. And by sympathy, I mean understanding, not necessarily just embrace and liking with this woman. And so, you know, those are the choices novelists get to make. You leave out certain things and, and take others. I mean, for instance, there's a tiny little section about in 1962 when she's really at a loss before she defects a few years before she defects where she's she's at a loss and 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 doesn't know who she is her father's been dead and in the middle of the night against all the laws in the soviet union she sneaks out to a cathedral out just outside of moscow on the edge and there a uh, a russian orthodox priest meets her and he baptizes her now, she didn't go on to be a, become a very religious person, but she flirted with it. But it was this idea that there he was, and he told her that there in the middle of the night in secret, that, you know, God loved her even though she was the daughter of Joseph Caesar. I want to go back to your talk in Sun Valley, where you explain, there's a part where you explain how it was that this 34-year-old lawyer, your father, came to be involved So he was 34 years old, and you might ask, how did he come to be with her on that day, and how and why did he bring her into the country? 
One of the senior partners at his law firm, Greenbaum, Wolf & Ernst, was General Greenbaum. He lived in Princeton, and his next-door neighbor was George Kennan. Many of you remember George Kennan as the great Russia diplomat and uh, expert of his time, uh, one of the great diplomats, really, in 20th century history, and also one of the intellectual creators, if you will, of containment and of the Cold War itself in some regards. George Kennan had received a copy of the manuscript that was in Svetlana Aluluyeva's bag when she defected in Delhi, and it was this memoir that she'd written in 1963. He read it in Russian, and he immediately recognized its significance and its quality, I would say. And he also recognized that there was real resistance in the American government to perhaps even taking her into this country. So he contacted his neighbor, and in the law firm it was determined that they should immediately try and get a publishing contract and help use that as part of the currency, if you will, to bring her into the country. My father ended up being the one who would negotiate that contract. But also it's true to say that these old guys who were running the firm really didn't feel like going over to Switzerland in the middle of the night, and so they called the younger guy and they sent him. Now, he did go under CIA cover, and the truth is she had been waiting in Switzerland for several weeks after leaving Delhi, wondering if we would in fact take her. And there was genuine concern at the time that she might be assassinated on Swiss soil by the Soviets. It was such, obviously, such a, a betrayal and such an embarrassment to the Soviet Union at that time. It was on the eve of the 50th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. It was the height of the Cold War and there was great concern. So she was actually staying in a convent with high security at the time. My father flies over in the middle of the night. He's met in Basel by a Swiss intelligence agent, very proper and polite, and he waits until my father gets on the train, makes sure he's on the train, and then he takes the train to Zurich. He arrives in Zurich, now it's almost the middle of the night, and he's taken to a hotel where he is the only person staying there. It's a little like The Shining, but with, you know, they serve raclette. <laughs> and so he is alarmed, anxious, uh, a little out of his depth. He's nervous physically and otherwise. He has about three hours of sleep, and early in the morning he goes to the Zurich International Airport, and there in a back room, surrounded by security, is the daughter of Joseph Stalin. They had false passports. They were under married names, Mr. and Mrs. Stalin. The moment they sat on the plane, it was in first class, not like these days. You know, now she's like comfort plus, maybe $10 for the sandwich. <laughs> he orders two martinis, not going to be the first or the last of the trip. They, they take off, they're midway through the flight. No one's supposed to know that she's on board. And he's summoned to the cockpit by the Swiss pilot and who's enraged and alarmed. He's just discovered over the radio who he's flying. So it's now out, the world knows, and he, my father goes back, they order more martinis. <laughs> uh, Svetlana turns to him at one point, puts her hand on his arm and says that he reminds her of her beloved brother Yaakov, the only brother she truly loved. He's dead by then, and the one who she felt protected him. In the time that they learned halfway through the flight that the word went out to the time when they landed is when all those people showed up at JFK. Let's talk about that JFK moment for a second. Um, 
I, I still find it hard to get my mind around it that, that more people showed up to greet her at the airport in 67 than turned up to greet the Beatles in 64. And her memoir was a bestseller, and the, the first one at, at least. Yeah. And from the vantage point of 2020, it's, it's a little difficult to grasp the enormous <laughs> significance of her defection and why, you know, we can understand it from the George Cannon point of view. We can understand it from the point of view of the CIA. The people showing up at the airport, can you tell us a bit about why she so electrified the public imagination? I think it was just, first of all, so little was known, even when, uh, I think, you know, even when she defected in, in India, as, as we'll hear in a little bit, the, the U.S. government knew very little about her. I mean, this was obviously before Google, before... Uh, social media and so she herself and it was such a sudden event i mean i she literally decided while she was on this visit she left two children two adult nearly adult children in back in the soviet union and one of them she would never see again and one of them she wouldn't see for for 17 years so it was truly as you said in the very beginning a one of those moments those decisive moments in, in a life. But it wasn't just a life. It was also the political atmosphere of the times, the height of the Cold War. Stalin was such a figure of, on the one hand, everybody could see him in the, in the images and had an idea of, of what he had been. And, and the, the Soviet Union itself was going through changes in, the, in its own relationship with Stalin's history. And then there was the fact that she decided she wanted to come to America. And I don't even think most people understood the fact that America at its highest levels didn't really want her. It was just too complicated and with too much potential downside. But it was truly an exciting and kind of mind-blowing event that at the time, but then she stays and then the story goes on. And that's, of course, when life gets really complicated. Let's play a little bit more of your talk. Yes, I'll, yeah, I'll and, set and it up how this for all a sec, which is to say we're now, it's 1966, and she had already been married and divorced twice, had two children and uh, 21 and 16. Yosef, her son, and Katya, her daughter. She goes in a hospital for a procedure. She's there two weeks, and there she meets this aging Indian communist, a very gentle man who's very ill and chronically. And so they become close. They talk for weeks, and then she gets out, and she says, when you get out, you must come live with us. So he gets out, and he goes and lives with them for a few months in their flat, and then he dies, and she had promised him that she would take his ashes back to India to his people. And at first she was denied permission. She had never been allowed to marry him because he was Indian. And then suddenly she's given permission. She has never been out of the country. Her passport is delivered back to her because it had been being held by the government. And here she goes. It's supposed to be a two week trip. She's never been out of the country. She tells her children she's going. They expect her to be back. She expects to be back. 
goes to the airport during a blizzard, her son drives her, she says goodbye, and then gets on the plane with this government minder and flies to Delhi. It's 1966, the beginning of the year. She leaves the minder in Delhi, as expected, and gets on a train and goes 600 miles down to Brajesh Singh's people, their village where they live on the Ganges. And there she participates in this funeral ceremony of his ashes. And then she moves into a room among his people who there's very limited language that they have in common. They don't know who she is, really. And they treat her like a member of the family, and there she stays. She's supposed to stay a week. At the end of the week, she writes the consulate, the Soviet consulate and the government to say, I'm not feeling well, I need to stay longer. She does this again a week later. They have very little leverage on her. They give her another extension, and she'll do it one more time after that. Because while she's there, something has begun to happen to her. For the first time, she is among people who have no idea who she is. And she's looking back at the place she came from. And she sees a cage, an absolute prison, in which she has been held, and the prison is her father's name. And she understands that now, 14 years after his death, she's never going to get out of that cage. Then she begins to feel as well that it is her responsibility to some degree that if her children are ever going to escape from that cage, that she must remove herself, that she is, in some sense, the cage that's holding them. She will come to regret this idea, but this is the thinking that she has, and she's having it at a time when she's in a completely foreign place. So she tries to extend her stay again. Her children, Joseph has written, he's asking if she's sick. Why is she taking so long? She says, no, I'm not sick. And then the government says, you have to come back. She goes back to Delhi. She says goodbye to Singh's family. She arrives, she's supposed to be on, there's gonna be a dinner for her that night, the consulate in a guest house. She's staying in the guest house, it's a house nearby filled with government people. The plane is gonna be leaving in the morning for Moscow with four or five government people on it to make sure she gets on the plane. She calls and says she has a headache, she can't go to dinner. She starts packing a, a little suitcase she has. She calls a taxi. Believe it or not, the taxi comes before Uber. Uh, comes to the back. Nobody sees her. She's not quite sure what she's doing. She walks out, gets in the cab. It goes four blocks to the American Embassy. That's how close they were. She knocks on the door. And it opens, she says who she is, and what she is, and what she wants. They don't really believe her. There's so little information about Stalin's daughter. Even there, and through the State Department, that they don't really know what to think. There's a lot of disbelief. They interview slash interrogate her for a good couple of hours. The consul there, Robert Rail, comes to believe that it's her. They have a psychiatrist give her an evaluation. I found that evaluation in my father's papers. There's a little bit of it in the book. 
It's not bad, actually, and it wasn't $200 an hour. So I, it's, it's kind of spot on, it's interesting. Meanwhile, they've sent a cable to the State Department in America telling them what has happened and that she has asked to defect, and they then begin a long wait for a response. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking. If she's not back in five hours, they'll know. They'll take her away. The Americans will give her back. So after a certain point, Rail buys two tickets, air tickets to Rome, one for him and one for her. They go to the airport, they get on the plane, they're about to take off, and there's a problem, mechanical problem with the plane. It sits on the tarmac for three hours. Meanwhile, a cable from the State Department comes back to the embassy saying, we will not take her. Remember, it's the eve of the Russian Revolution, the 50th anniversary, the height of the Cold War, when the world hangs on a knife edge of nuclear annihilation. The last thing they want to do is stick a thumb in the eye of the Soviet Union, and they just don't believe it's worth it. However, they're not aware that the plane is still on the tarmac at the airport. Had they been, they would have taken her off the plane. Instead, the plane takes off and goes to Rome, and from Rome it goes to Switzerland, and it's there that Mrs. Stalin meets Mr. Stalin some weeks later and make their way into America. It's amazing that this psychiatric evaluation that must have been conducted, what, like in an hour in Delhi yes. <laughs> in the strangest of circumstances, that somehow this psychiatrist, whoever it was, managed to get her. That's very, very interesting. Did you uh, use a lot? I mean, I know you quoted um, a short I, passage I, I of it I quoted in the just book, a, but did, a bit did of you it. use it? Yeah. It, it was, yes, it was about two and a half pages, type pages long. And I mean, what it really captures is a, a kind of completely riven personality somebody who needs to dominate and, and can be brusque and is competitive in a sense. And at the same time, someone who desperately wants to be loved. And that she's very susceptible because of that to flattery and to certain kinds of behavior that would make her feel loved in a certain way or important. And the truth, when you go back over the decisions she made, the marrying Frank Lloyd Wright's son-in-law, her absolutely losing battle of wills against Ogilvana Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright's widow at Taliesin during that almost two years that she was there, living in this sort of cult-like atmosphere, which is, you know, it's a section of the book and it could have been a novel in itself easily. Definitely. And how Ogilvana was more Stalin-esque than Stalin in certain ways. It's quite extraordinary. And in fact, had been born in, I believe, in the village where Svetlana's mother came from. So, I mean, she was part Georgian. And so there are all these kind of links there, but that decision you only make these sorts of decisions and go back over the, the memoirs and the diaries and the letters, and you see this person who continues to make extreme and terrible decisions and then kind of bowls her way through them 
and at the same time has qualities that are appealing and that could do good, but it's all trapped in this vessel of this person. She didn't lead a large life in other respects in the sense that she wasn't political. You know, she wasn't savvy. She wasn't shrewd. She didn't do this for money. She really didn't know how to handle money or even what to make of it. I mean, she made all this money at first and then, you know, the last 20 years of her life, at least, she was desperately poor. And, you know, at one point lived in a home for the indigent in, in London in the, in the 90s. And she died in an assisted living community outside Spring Green, Wisconsin, Taliesin. So she had come back after, after redefecting to the Soviet Union in the mid-80s. We didn't even get to that. She drags her 13-year-old American daughter, who's a son in the book, I should add, back to the Soviet Union. The girl speaks no Russian she goes to see, it's again, a very spontaneous decision. She meets her son and his extended family and all these people who were there and becomes briefly a sort of puppet of the state. But then it turns out that the Soviets don't know what to make of her either. She can't be used by them or by the CIA or by anybody because she's so, she's so extremely emotional you know, and she's not doing it for these grand political reasons. And so she's uncontrollable and contradictory. And to my mind, you could argue that that captures the atmosphere as well as anything. But I think it certainly captures the human element of it. And it makes it both kind of preposterous and also tragic. And that these decisions correspond with someone who also never stopped trying to find love and trying to be the person who wasn't her father's daughter. And yet at the very end in this little two-room apartment in this assisted living place in Wisconsin, she had, I think, three photographs she had brought with her throughout her whole life, the only things practically that she had carried with her. And one was a picture of the Dasha where she had spent her happiest years when she was young, which is outside of Moscow, is called Zubovolo, and where she had been happiest with her father. And another one was her mother holding her when she was a baby, and because she could never actually remember ever being held or touched by her mother. And it was sort of proof that she had been loved. And another one were her children. And that was it. Well, you know, I think at your talk at Sun Valley, you you sum it up really beautifully in terms of what she was looking for in her crazy way, and which she probably never found. But I, I just want to um, play one last clip that really, to my mind, sums it up. So I'll leave you with one thing that she said when she arrived. And my father had tried to get her to use his words or more official words when she arrived and she denied this. And she wanted to speak in her own words, which if you come to know Svetlana in one way or another, you know that that's how she rolled. She was a very strong-minded, difficult at times person. But she arrives and she charmed everyone. She was attractive, bluntly charismatic, 
intelligent, spoke decent English. And one of the things she said was, on the tarmac that day was, I believe that one can feel at home anywhere where one can feel free. It was a line that was met with much appreciation, but you have to now unpack that line a little bit in light of what you've come to know. And you have to wonder whether she ever felt at home or ever felt free or ever landed in all the journeys that she made. John, I don't think I can uh, improve on that ending. Um, it is an intensely moving book, and she's an impossible, maddening, but an intensely moving character. So thank you very much for talking with me about her, and I hope everyone who's listening reads this. Thank you. Thanks, Larissa. You know, it is such a pleasure to talk to you. I should add, this is a mutual admiration society. You, you know I'm a huge fan of yours and of your book, Strangers Drowning, which is extraordinary. And uh, I hope our listeners will forgive us for having a mutual admiration society since we are in quarantine and have no other society. But it's been, <laughs> it's been great. I really enjoy it. And I hope to see you guys really soon. Definitely. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shilliday and the Network Studios. 